The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church Pulpit Series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Father, your word is life. And I pray, Lord, as we open your word, that we would receive your life. The Lord, that you would speak clearly to us this morning. And as a result of receiving your word into our hearts, we would be transformed into the image of your son. Lord, I pray this in your name. We all say, Amen. Amen. May I take your seats. Well, as relations between Christians and pagans became increasingly tense, the 4th century emperor Constantine needed a political masterstroke that would fuse the empire together. He found that masterstroke in the theological invention designed to blend Christian devotion to the man Jesus of Nazareth with the pagan practice of worshipping divine persons. And so Constantine, as the story goes, proposed that Jesus should be regarded and worshipped as divine, a god in his own right. The plan was brilliant. Not only would it blend Christian and pagan beliefs, it would also provide Constantine with a powerful new political tool, a divine figure whose authority could not be challenged by the masses. And so to seal the deal of this ingenious masterstroke, Constantine in AD 325 in the great city of Nicaea, put forward his idea, applied the necessary political pressure, and with the smallest of margins, won the vote. From now on, declared the Council of Nicaea, Jesus is to be worshipped as true God of true God, as the church's Nicaean creed declares to this very day. All that was left to complete Constantine's plan was a rewriting of the history books. And so, as the story goes again, the Vatican helped the emperor by banning and then burning the original Gospels about Jesus, those which speak of him merely as a human teacher, and commissioned four newly edited Gospels to support this new political idea of Jesus' divinity. These Gospels are the four Gospels we now have in our New Testament. Now, I should probably stop this version of the Jesus Becomes God story before some of you start stoning me or others of you walk out of church claiming that Lewis is now a raving heretic. Church, just to ease the tension in the room this morning, every detail that I've mentioned up until this point is complete fabrication. It's historically baseless, and some of you might be familiar with this account of things, this Jesus Becomes God story, because this is exactly what Dan Brown proposes in his 2003 novel, best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code. Church, again, just to ease the tension, because I, I could just feel your eyes kind of burning right through me there as I was sharing. Historians around the world, Christian historians and non-Christian historians, would tell you that the only detail in Dan Brown's version of things that is legitimate is the detail, or sorry, the date that he gives to the Nicene Council. That did actually happen in AD 325. But beyond that detail, all the other details are really nothing more than a fairy tale. 
For example, the Vatican had pretty much nothing to do with the Council of Nicaea. The Bishop of Rome, that is the Pope himself, he didn't even attend the eight-week-long meeting. He sent two priests to his place. And of the 250 bishops that gathered for the council, only six of those were Roman Catholic. The vast majority of those were uh, Eastern Orthodox believers from Syria and Palestine and Turkey and other places. Also, the discussion at the council wasn't around Jesus' divinity per se. It was, they accepted that. The vast majority of the bishops already accepted that. The question was, well, how is he divine? Not is he divine, but how is he divine? Because of the 250 bishops, 248 of them uh, voted in full favor of Jesus' full divinity. And so it wasn't, as Dan Brown suggests, a close call. It was a landslide. And probably the most important detail of them all, Constantine wasn't let me just stress, wasn't behind the scenes, pulling the strings, determining the outcome of the council, kind of trying to make Jesus divine in order to control the masses and blend Christianity with paganism. He couldn't care less whether Jesus was divine or not. His main concern was unity, establishing peace in his kingdom. The Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, which is the academic authority on this whole question of Constantine's involvement at the council, states this. Constantine's main interest was to secure unity rather than any predetermined theological verdict. I'll say that again. Constantine's main interest was to secure unity rather than any predetermined theological verdict. In fact, fact, just to prove this to to us, that um, he didn't even chair the meetings. He was the emperor, but he didn't even chair the eight-week-long meeting. He just gave the opening address whereby he essentially said, come on, guys, you're breaking my heart. Just get along, unite. And, And that was pretty much all his involvement was. So under closer examination, Dan Brown's rewriting of the history books, well, it's just a novel, it's not history, it's pure baseless. Now, let me ask you, why have I started the sermon this way? I assume some of you are thinking, where the heck is Lewis going with this? Thank you, Grace. I love your honesty. You are always honest. That's why I love you. That's why we love you. Two weeks ago, we kicked off our new Christmas series called Jesus More Than the Baby. And two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus being Messiah, that is God's special saving king, who was sent by God into the world to redeem humanity. Last week, we looked at Jesus is judge, that is, Jesus is God's appointed judge, and as judge, he will judge fairly because he was judged for us on the cross. That's the message of Christianity, that a judge became the judge in order for those who deserve judgment would receive God's pardon. That's the remarkable message of Christmas and, and of course, Easter. Today we're thinking about Jesus and him being divine. Jesus is more than the baby. He is divine. He is God. In other words, we're thinking about Jesus' divinity. We're considering the incarnation of God. Now, I didn't say incantation. That is Harry Potter, and that is a fairy tale. But we're thinking about the incarnation of God, true God, as the Nicene Creed declares, true God of true God, becoming fully one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when we start talking this way, a lot of people begin to get a bit nervous. 
when we start talking about Jesus' divinity. And, and I can understand that because I haven't always been a follower of Christ's. One of the reasons why people struggle to accept this whole idea of the incarnation, the, you know, the divine becoming human, is that they, they reason this just sounds too unbelievable, kind of incredible to be believable. It sounds too mythical to be logical, and yet still others struggle to accept this. And and this is why I started the sermon this way, because of the sources, listen to me, the sources for Jesus. Do you you understand what I I mean? The sources for Jesus. The sources we have for Jesus' identity, everything we know about him is what? The New Testament. Primarily the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But because of the influence of Dan Brown and other unhelpful documentaries on SBS and other channels, a lot of people call into question the validity of these documents, these sources, the sources for Jesus. I know this firsthand. This is not just hearsay, as most of you would know. I'm a a hairdresser. I was a hairdresser. I still cut hair from time to time. And if you want a haircut, I'll cut your hair. But being a hairdresser meant, for me, speaking to literally thousands and thousands and thousands about Christ, about Christianity, their struggles with Christ. And one of the struggles that they had, the one that kept cropping up, was this whole question of Constantine. Like, I think he fudged the books to promote his own political agenda. Just the other month, Alvin and I... We went out into Parramatta Mall. Uh, we do so from time to time just to talk to people in the streets. And we have this little survey. And I was talking to this young woman, and she essentially gave me the version that I gave you at the beginning of this message. She didn't use the name Constantine, but she said, yeah, I believe Jesus was a historical figure, but... Mm, I think the church has kind of added to him down through the years, made him out to be someone he isn't. At Alpha just recently, and by the way, the person's not in the room, that's all good, but at Alpha, someone said, Constantine changed Christianity. That's what they said to me. And so from the get-go here, we need to clearly think about the sources for Jesus. In other words, are these documents, primarily the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, reliable? Do they give us a clear, honest, accurate portrayal of the person and identity of Jesus Christ? And so we're going to be thinking about the sources for Jesus. After that, we're going to be thinking about implications of Jesus' divinity. That is, how should we respond to this doctrine, the incarnation, Jesus being divine? So this is where we're heading in the sermon, sources for Jesus and implications of Jesus' divinity. So firstly, the sources. Now I'm going to to read some of this out because I've got some some details here that uh, I need to communicate clearly and we need to understand clearly. So the question here under the sources for Jesus is this. Can we really, like really trust the four New Testament documents that give us most of our information about Jesus? That's the question. Can they be trusted? For almost a century, biblical scholarship was dominated by a view called form criticism. Now, just a word of warning, for the next 10 minutes, it's going to feel like you're in Bible college. Uh, But for some of you, that's fine because you've always wanted to go to Bible college. So here's your golden moment. Here's your golden opportunity. But for others of you... Just hang in there, all right? Hang in there. Form criticism. What the heck is form criticism? Well, form critics believe, that is those who engage in form criticism, believed that the Gospels are, now listen, folk literature, the product of oral tradition. Now, some of you are like, I hate Bible college already, man. Just give me something in layman's terms, please. Well, okay, layman's terms. They believe, these former critics, that the information about Jesus, including his divinity, that's what we're thinking about, Jesus more than a baby, he's divine, was the result of 
Chinese whispers. Now, we're all familiar with Chinese whispers, right? You've got a, a group, a, you know, uh, six people at the table, and the sentence begins with person A, and it moves around the table, and by the time it gets back to person A, the sentence is a bit different, right? Chinese whispers. Well, these former critics believed that the early Christian communities did that with the message of Jesus. And so it was thought that they modified, embellished, and quite frankly made stuff up about Jesus to make him out to sound more spectacular. And so the form critic's quest was to get behind the Chinese whispers, to get behind the legends concerning Jesus, the embellishments about the person of Christ in order to discover, or should I say rediscover, the true historical Jesus. Well, in the last 20 years or so, form criticism has come under fire. It's, it's no longer in vogue for two main reasons. It's now widely accepted in the scholarly world, Christian scholars, non-Christian scholars, that although some ancient communities did alter their stories, oral tradition, to, to make them more spectacular and kind of otherworldly, this was not always the practice. In fact, when a community was remembering some shared historical event or some shared historical account, the stories had to be passed down without the slightest alteration from generation to generation to generation meticulously, without the slightest alteration. That's called oral history, not oral tradition. And most scholars believe now that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the, the, the remainder of the New Testament, fall into the second category of ancient literature, not oral tradition, Chinese whispers, but oral history. That is, the Gospels are eyewitness accounts of what Jesus actually did and what he said. So that's the first reason why form criticism is out of vogue. The second reason is this. It's very important, this one. The Gospels do not show signs of having been shaped to fit the needs or the sensibilities or the beliefs of the cultures and communities of the time. In fact, believing in and preaching Jesus' divinity meant hostility for the early church. It really did. In their book, 2007 book, Paul Eady and Gregory Boyd, it's called The Jesus Legend, question mark, they say this. The claims of Jesus' identity is that of Yahweh God and that he should receive worship, listen to what he says, went painfully against the grain of both Greek and Hebrew worldviews and subjected Christians to ridicule best and abuse at worst. Meaning Christians had every reason to play down or eliminate Jesus' divinity from their message, but they didn't. They continued to construct hymns about Christ's divinity. They continued to believe in Jesus' divine nature. They continued to preach that message. And as a result, a lot of them were cast to the lions or given over to the sword. Even when they were commanded to bow the knee to Caesar, they said, no, we're not. We have one Lord, one God, one King, and that is Jesus Christ. Yeah. Edie and Boyd continue. It is hard to understand how this story, the, the message of Jesus becoming God, came about in this environment, this hostile context in such a short span of time, unless it is substantially rooted in history. In history. 
And so far from being a case of Chinese whispers or a fourth century ploy to blend and bleed Christianity with paganism and control the masses, the sources for Jesus, according to most scholars, are eyewitness accounts, trustworthy eyewitness accounts of what Jesus actually did and what he actually said. And for our purposes this morning, the New Testament claims and promotes Jesus for divinity. For example, now we're going to go to the source, these primary documents. In John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1, this is how he kicks off his message. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, I can't unpack that. There's a lot of stuff going on there. In the beginning was the Word. A lot of freight, theological, philosophical freight there in, in, by the term uh, the Word. But essentially, the Greeks believed that behind the cosmos, behind the universe, was this impersonal principle that gave rise to all things, animation to all things. Well, well, John says, yes, that's kind of half true, but it's not completely true. There is a principle behind the cosmos, but it's not impersonal, it's personal. It's the person of Christ. And so he says, in the beginning is the Word, or was the Word, and, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so there's this being who's distinct from God, that is God the Father, who is himself equally God. The word was God. And in verse 14, we're given the identity of this word because he said the word became one of us. He took on flesh. He made his home with us, the person of Jesus Christ. And so from the get-go, Jesus, according to John, is God. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a conversation with some of the religious leaders, and it's a heated conversation. A lot of Jesus' conversations with the religious elite were a little heated. And he says to them, Even before Abraham was born, I am. And what did they do? They picked up rocks and they tried to do Jesus in. Why? I mean, he only said, I am. And if I say, I am, see, no one's going to throw a stone at me. It's all good. Jesus, in that context, using that term, I am, was considered blasphemous. It was considered to be blasphemy. Why? Because the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true God, the self-existent, self-sufficient, self-determining, great God, revealed himself to Israel, revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush by saying, I am, I am. And here's Jesus several thousands of years later saying, that's me, that's me, I am. And so Jesus claimed for himself full divinity. He claimed to be Yahweh God, the God of Israel, the God of the whole earth. In John chapter 20, right at the end, after Jesus' resurrection, I love Thomas. Thomas, he's with the other disciples, and he says, "Mm, you know, you can believe without seeing, but I'm not going to do that. All right, I only believe when I see. I'm going to play the skeptic. Every group needs a skeptic, and I'm going to be that one. And and so he's doubting Thomas. He says, I'm I'm not going to believe until I put my fingers through the holes in his hands and put my hand to his side and... Jesus graciously, lovingly appears to Thomas and says to Thomas, Oh, Thomas, stop doubting. Believe. Stop being a doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas, in other words. Trust in me. And he says, okay, where are your fingers? All right, come on, go for it. Where's your hand? Okay, go for it. And how does Thomas respond? Well, he responds by worshipping Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God. My God. Now, how does Jesus respond or receive that worship? He doesn't say, oh, 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 Thomas, you're not only a doubter, but now you're being a blasphemer. No, no, he receives the worship because Jesus knew that he was God. God. God incarnate. 
And so that's John. What about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul didn't always believe in Jesus' full divinity. In fact, he was on a rampage to bring the church down. He hated Christians and he hated Christians' Christ. He hated the unbelievable, the, 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 the misguided notion, according to him back then, of Jesus being divine. And he was on his way to Damascus. And of course, some of you know the account. He was struck down and he hears that voice and he says, Lord, Lord, who, who, who are you? And he's expecting the voice to say, Yahweh. And what does he hear? Jesus. Jesus, and from that day forward, he preached passionately and taught and wrote about Jesus' full divinity. For example, in Colossians 1.15, he says these words, Christ is the image of the invisible God. In layman's terms, that means if you want to see the face of God, look squarely into the face of Jesus. And how do you do that? Well, you, you go to the source. You go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You just read because what you see there in Jesus is God. You're looking into the face of God as you think about and reflect on Jesus. What about in Philippians 2.5? He says this about Jesus. Who being in very nature God. Not God-like. Not almost like God. Not having God-like characteristics. No, in very nature God. In very nature divine. Romans 9.5. He says Jesus is Messiah. Listen to this. Who is God over all. All, over Israel, over the Jews, over the Gentiles, over the whole universe. He's God over all, forever praised. You see, church, this is the reason why those 248 bishops at the Council of Nicaea voted in full favor of Jesus' full divinity because of biblical statements like these. And this is why it's right for us at this time of year, Christmas time, to sing that carol. You know the carol? Oh, come, all ye faithful. Uh, the fourth verse, who can tell me what the fourth verse says? How does it? I know Andrew would know this, but beyond. Sorry? <laughs> well, the, the reason why most of us don't know is because we only sing the first three verses, right? Because, like every other carol, they're like 20 verses long and we haven't got time to go through them all. But the, the, the fourth verse starts this way True God of true God. Remember? Uh, light of light eternal. I don't know the rest of the verse, but then the chorus kicks in. <laughs> oh, come on, adore him. Yeah? And so it's right for us to respond to Jesus' divinity this way by coming alongside Thomas and saying, My Lord and my God, true God of true God, light of light of eternal, we will worship you. And so the sources for Jesus are accurate, and they claim. That Jesus is fully divine. Now, some of you might be here and you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, I can concede that. But that doesn't mean it's true. Even though the documents are reliable, doesn't mean they're right. I mean, I can say that A is true, but B might be true. And that's a really good point. And so if that's you, if you're here today, let me just encourage you this Christmas, but beyond Christmas, to investigate the person of Jesus for yourself. To explore him because he claimed to be God. Not only impersonally, but your God, your king, your savior, who came from heaven enough to rescue, to save you, to bring you back home to God. And so I, I encourage you, I urge you to investigate Jesus for yourself. And how do you do that? Well, again, go to the sources. Since they are historically reliable, read them through and see for yourself the portrait of Jesus Christ. Yeah? So the sources for Jesus. Now, 
implications of Jesus' divinity. In other words, how should we respond to this truth of Jesus being divine? Well, two responses. First, we are to respond to Jesus' divinity with humility. Humility, meaning people, since day dot, have preferred to cherry-pick their image of God. A, a little bit of this, kind of, I like that. Uh, I think I'll alter that. I'll adjust that picture of Christ. And, and church, none of us are immune from this. You know, those of us who are more liberal by nature tend to want a left-wing kind of Jesus. But those of us who are more conservative by nature, that's me, and some of you know that by the way I preach, I tend to want a more right-wing kind of Jesus. But the fact that Jesus is divine means that we don't have the liberty to make a God out of our own making. Christ is God, which means he gets to call the shots concerning his own identity and mission. What does John say? Jesus came full of grace and truth. Now, if you use political terms, it's probably not helpful, but we're going to run with it. Jesus came full of left, and he came full of right, full of grace and full of truth. You see, as soon as you think, you know what, I've got Jesus all worked out, He's kind of in my back pocket. You realize you don't have the authentic Jesus. You know, I've got my left wing. No, you don't. You don't have Jesus. I've got my right wing. No, you don't. You don't have the authentic Jesus. You have a plastic Jesus, a synthetic Jesus. And plastic Jesus need to be thrown aside. You know, John says this in his first epistle, 1 John 5.12. He says, whoever has the Son... That is, in all his glory, all his divinity, receive the Son, has life, life, eternal life, abundant life, true, satisfying life. Your world may be upside down, everything may be completely chaotic, but with Jesus, there is life. He goes on to say, whoever does not have the Son of God, if you have a plastic Jesus, in other words, does not have life. And so Jesus gets to call the shots concerning his own identity as God, and we are to humble ourselves before him. Amen? We're not to make a Christ out of our own making because we'll end up with a plastic Jesus. Secondly, second response. We're to respond with hope. So first humility, secondly with hope. What do I mean? Well, let me give you this true story to explain what I mean here, with hope. There was a young lady called Christina who was raised in a small shanty town outside, outside Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And Cristina had always wanted to experience the bright lights and party atmosphere of Brazil's most famous city. But her mother often warned her of the dangers in the city, unemployment, the sleazy strip bars and brothels. Cristina didn't listen. This is a true story, by the way. Cristina didn't listen. One day she packed her bags and secretly headed to the forbidden city. Terrified at what might become of her daughter, Christina's mother set out to find her. She searched the vast city in vain. Fearing the worst, she visited some of Rio's sleaziest places, and on the walls of these places, she pinned photos of herself as her mum. Brothel after brothel, photo, 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 photo of herself. On the back of these photos, on each photo, she wrote these words, Whatever you have done... It doesn't matter. Please come home. Christina did eventually find herself employed in a Rio brothel. 
She felt too ashamed to return home, believing that her mother would refuse to accept her back into the family home. One day, Christina was stumbling down the stairwell of one of these seedy joints when she noticed on the wall a photo of her mother. She took the photo and read the message on the back. Gazing down at her mother's image, this photo of her dear mum, her confusion and shame evaporated. The photo said it all. Christina immediately returned home. You see, the doctrine of Jesus' divinity declares that God has left a photo of himself in the world. That in Jesus' life, teachings, miracles, primarily his death on the cross, we see God. We get a photo of God. And so many people who have gazed into this photo of God in Jesus have found comfort and life and deep satisfaction, even in the midst of chaos and alarm. John Dixon, in his book, A Doubter's Guide to Jesus, which is the book that we've based our series on, he writes this. For those with life experiences which have distorted their picture of God. And by the way, a lot of people have such images of God. Distorted pictures. I had a distorted picture of God before I came to faith. I was angry at God. I was angry at him. I had a distorted picture. And, and many people have distorted pictures of God because they've seen a loved one die in their arms. They've seen a, f- a family member or a friend suffer tragically. They've experienced hypocrisy in the church. They've had a distorted picture of God. He continues, but looking to Christ, the photo of God has brought the Almighty back into focus. They find in him a picture of the Creator in all his grace and gentleness and love. In other words, what you see in Jesus is what you get with God. You see, this is why it's right for us to place our hope in Christ. And how do we do that? Well, we join Thomas and we worship Christ as God. My God, my Lord, my God. We place our hope in him. And also, this is why it's right for us, church, to engage in local and global mission. Because Jesus, as the divine one, true God of true God, the incarnation, is humanity's only hope. And so this is why we're to share this hope that is only found in Christ with those we love. And also, let us never forget the unreached people groups of the world. Those in the world that need this message of Christ. He is their only hope. And so church, there are people in this church who have a passion to take this message out to the four corners of the earth. And we should pray for them. We should support them. We should financially support them. Prayerfully support them as they go. If we can't go ourselves, then let's be a sending church that sends this message with them to the ends of the earth. Yeah? Because he is humanity's only hope. He is the divine one who became man in order to make men sons and daughters of God, said C.S. Lewis. And so church, Jesus is more than a baby. (laughs) He's more than a baby. He is Messiah, yes. He is judge, yes. He's God incarnate. He's God in skin. He's God, the one who came to rescue you, rescue me, to take us back home to heaven. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. How about we stand, church, and we reflect just for a moment on this?
Thanks, team. Lord. I'm well aware that this is a weighty topic, but one that causes such joy as we reflect on who this person was. The Word became flesh, made his home with us to die for us in order to take us back home. And I'm aware that if you're here today and you're visiting or you're on a journey exploring things, or if you're not, in fact, you couldn't care less, like Constantine, whether Jesus is divine or not. Let me lovingly urge you, consider Christ this Christmas. Investigate him. Explore him. Explore him. Because he claims to be your God. And he wants you to know him as God and as Savior and as friend. it's the most wonderful thing Lord thank you Lord thank you Lord because your love never fails it never gives up it never runs out on me because your love never fails it never gives up it never runs out on me because your love to never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love, your love, cause your love never fails and never gives up.